And so people with secure attachments to God uh, won't find new ideas or ideas different than theirs particularly threatening. Uh, If they do feel threatened, they can uh, kind of modulate that emotion. Uh, They don't have to react so drastically in response to it. And they feel more freedom to explore the intellectual world, uh, even if it provides uh, a lot more complexity and nuance than uh, might be initially comfortable for them. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dr. Elizabeth Hall about the psychology of doubt. We are responding to an essay that Dr. Hall wrote, published in the spring issue of Christian Scholars Review, Teaching Students to Doubt Well. As always, if you find the conversation helpful, please take a moment to share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. If you've ever read Plato's Apology, then you know that in it Socrates defends himself against the charge that he is corrupting the youth of Athens. In his defense speech, we learn that Socrates is the wisest man in Athens, precisely because he knows that he is not wise. He knows that he does not know. And Socrates' mission is not to corrupt the people of Athens, but to free them from their pretensions of wisdom so that they may truly begin to become wise. The beginning of wisdom, according to Socrates, is the admission that one does not know. Now that is a wonderful bit of cultural insight, humility that comes from a recognition of our ignorance. But it strikes me that both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament writers encourage us to start in a different place. As the sages of Israel put it, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Likewise, when Peter famously uses the word apologia in 1 Peter 3.15, before telling Christians to give answers or make a defense, he reminds them that wise witnessing begins with personal commitment. The first step is an effective, imaginative, and spiritual step, not an intellectual one. As Peter writes, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Like Socrates, We start with an admission of humility, not the admission that we know nothing, but the admission that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. This knowledge of Christ is not primarily conceptual, but personal, involving not airtight certainty, but relational trust and commitment. Christian humility leads to patient hope. We do not have all the answers. We do not have absolute certainty. We are still living in the middle of the story. What we do have is confidence, a confidence rooted in the character of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who raised Israel from Egypt. Commitment to Christ, Peter says, issues forth in a life characterized by hope. And this hopeful orientation, he says, evokes questions. Christian faith means hearing and responding to objections, the doubts that call Christian hope into question. But faith is more than just having answers. It is less a leap of faith and more a leap of trust. 
It is allegiance and commitment to Christ, under the conviction that though there is much we don't know or understand, we've seen enough to believe that God can still be trusted. This ought to shift the way we look for answers, as well as the freedom with which we ask questions. Our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Hall, is a psychologist and researcher, and she brings the resources of psychology to bear on our wonderings, our doubts, and our insecurities. She shows how shifting the way we think and talk about knowledge, faith, and doubt makes all the difference in cultivating virtues like intellectual humility and the ability to tolerate ambiguity. We hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Hall. I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my co-host for this episode, Dr. Shannon Vischer, who is professor of chemistry and planetary science here at Dort, as well as the esteemed director of our Andreas Center. Shannon, thanks for hosting with me. Glad to be here. Our featured guest for this episode is Dr. Elizabeth Hall. Dr. Hall is professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University in La Mirada, California. And today we're talking with her about her article published in the spring issue of Christian Scholars Review and linked in the show notes, Teaching Students to Doubt Well. Dr. Hall, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you start your article discussing the well-known phenomenon of college students questioning and sometimes abandoning their former faith, especially as they struggle to reconcile faith and science. And you note that a lot of attention has been paid to the formal problem of how to reconcile faith and science, as well as to maybe particular difficulties and doubts. But there's been less attention uh, paid to the felt lived experience of doubt, the psychology of doubt, uh, so to speak. And what might make that experience not only bearable, but even enriching to faith. Can you say a little bit more about what we gain from paying attention to that dimension of doubt? The word doubt is kind of an ambiguous one. I mean, it could range from kind of this earth shattering conflict that makes it seem as if the world no longer makes any sense, all the way to kind of a mild curiosity where someone wonders how, you know, things uh, that they have in mind can be reconciled. And the difference in these different ways of experiencing doubt is not so much the amount of information the person has about whatever the topic is that they uh, are doubting, but instead it's due to a variety of factors that lie under the surface. Uh, Things such as the sense of felt security in relationship to God, their social context that influences the kinds of solutions that seem plausible, things like their ability to tolerate uncertainty, what they think might be the implications for their Christian faith of their doubt, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we understand this felt experience dimension of doubt, we're actually in a much better position to actually intervene to support people are struggling with doubt. We can have strategies that move beyond simply providing them with more information. Yeah, one of the distinctions you make that I found very helpful was a distinction between explicit knowing and implicit knowing. And I'm sure that you could probably give a better um, explanation, but I'll just for the sake of the audience say that, or maybe just quote what you say, that explicit knowledge is linear, it's logical, it's language-based. It's probably what most of us think of when we think of knowing. But you also said there's this felt experience, this more intuitive, implicit knowledge that we feel in our bodies. And the way I've described this um, from my own experience as a pastor and professor is this idea of 
doubt starting in the imagination, that there's this felt narrowness, perhaps, that we feel uh, that the world that we've been told is, is too small, um, and, and we feel the need to move in another direction. And can you say more about these categories of implicit and explicit knowing and how they could shift the way we think about what it means to have faith, um, even how we define having faith, um, and wrestle with, with difficulties with faith? Yeah, I really like the way that you phrase that, that, uh, you know, narrowing of the lens that we've been given uh, for the world. Uh, And if I'm understanding you correctly, it it resonates with what I read, for example, in philosopher Charles Taylor, which he calls the social imaginary. It's basically just what seems plausible to us, what kind of intuitively makes sense to us, right? I mean, to take an example from, you know, far afield, what we're talking about, but uh, in other parts of the world, it makes sense to think that demons are behind mental illness, for example, right? And in our context, even if we have kind of theological commitments that uh, think that demons are a a real thing, we might not find explanations that invoke demons particularly plausible, right? Uh, I I like the way that you put that, you know, the lens that we're given to view the world, which obviously is so influenced by by our context. Now, with respect to your question about faith and doubt, uh, again, for various cultural reasons, reasons that affect our imagination in your terms, we've tended to think in the past couple of centuries of faith more and more as this kind of explicit knowledge kind of thing, in which having faith means that we believe with a high degree of certainty the right kinds of things. And with this view of faith, any kind of doubt is going to be very threatening, because if we are doubting, that means that we don't have that certainty, which by definition means that we don't have faith, and all of a sudden, our entire kind of identity as a Christian is is threatened. But this very explicit way of thinking about faith is actually not very consistent with the way that the Bible speaks about it, nor is it the way that the historical Christian tradition has thought about faith. So a more robust kind of way of conceptualizing faith does include these explicit beliefs. I mean, how can you be a Christian without believing, for example, that there is a God? But it also definitely includes things that belong more in this implicit uh, way of knowing. And so people use words like commitment or trust or allegiance. And these are all words that try to capture this kind of interpersonal implicit dimension of knowing. So when we think about faith in this way, in this more robust way, then perceived cracks at the more explicit level in terms of the intellectual system of our faith are just not as earth shattering. They're merely things that we want, that we hope to try to figure out, but that if ultimately we can't, we're still left with this feeling of underlying confidence uh, in in God. Yeah, kind of following that, uh, a more explicit conflict with scientific content is often cited as a reason for religious struggle because we do tend to have this sort of ascendancy of explicit knowledge uh, over the past centuries. Yeah, as you note in the article, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that uh, changes in religious belief are strongly influenced by relationships and by this sort of implicit or more affective uh, knowledge. So I'm just curious, to what extent do we latch on to these explicit explanations to rationalize what we've already sort of decided to believe uh, kind of in our gut or from a more effective or implicit level? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, one that uh, actually a lot of psychologists who study deconversion uh, wrestle with. If you look at just about any study asking people why they no longer believe, uh, most of the people are going to cite 
explicit cognitive reasons for their lack of faith. Um, but there are a couple of studies that have actually, you know, interviewed people about the process of deconverting. And what they find is a very common narrative in which uh, the deconversion process starts not with intellectual doubt, but with relational breaks. These might be with uh, breaks with religious leaders or uh, hurtful experiences with people in their Christian context, or sometimes even with God, you know, feeling that God has not lived up to their expectations by maybe allowing something bad to happen in their lives or by not answering a prayer or that kind of thing. And uh, that often then leads down the road to doubt, which then results in a deconversion process. So I think that the research supports it, that this is in fact a pattern that fits uh, many, if not all people who end up losing their faith. Related to that, you know, speaking as a scientist, it often feels that there's a greater willingness to trust information provided through relational means, uh, such as on social media. And we, we see this phenomenon very strongly today, rather than the scientific community, for example, you know, despite sort of the ascendancy of explicit knowledge, we still see this phenomenon. So, you know, does this phenomenon fit in as another manifestation of how we might deal with doubt? Oh, I definitely think so. Uh, you know, one very oversimplified way of talking about our implicit knowledge system is that it evaluates external stimuli in terms of whether it's threatening or not. And in, in other words, kind of the, the bottom line is our sensed well-being, uh, how it affects us. And we are kind of hardwired to not like tension. Um, so, uh, I mean, just kind of a, a little funny example of this. If I were to say to you, uh, she saved up her money to buy and I said a computer, you probably don't feel any tension. But if I say she saved up her money to buy an elephant, if you're paying attention to your body, you probably sense this little like, you know, there's just kind of a little moment of tension because it doesn't make sense, right? We don't like that tension. We're wired to try to get rid of that as soon as possible. And so when we are basically bombarded with information the way that we are in this uh, current age, and we're hearing things from diverse sources that conflict with each other. One very uh, simple and effective, if we're talking about you know just getting rid of tension, one way of doing that is to just make one of those sources disappear, right? And so when we can default to only listening to people kind of in our tribe, people who are like us and consequently who we can more easily trust, then it makes it very easy to kind of get away from the, the troubling sense of tension and doubt that might come up. Yeah, I find this sort of this, this lens, the psychological lens, so illuminating in so many different ways. And even the way you were talking about, it's almost like there's this immune system, this cultural immune system, um, or this relational immune system that you have, that these pieces of information are processed not as discrete pieces of information, but either as threats that my, you know, my immune system identifies and tries to eliminate or as um, something that can be absorbed in, you know, comfortably fit within my larger sort of ecosystem of meaning. Um, the other thing that I really like about the article is you bring in attachment theory, which I'm going to ask you to tell us what that does a little bit. But you write, a secure relationship with God at the implicit level allows for more doubting well, doubting well at the cognitive level. So can you say more about that, what attachment theory is and what role secure attachment plays in this dynamic of faith and doubt? 
Yeah, attachment theory is uh, becoming a, a very well-known theory in the field of psychology. In fact, it's becoming one of the dominant paradigms in several different uh, fields, such as developmental psychology, clinical psychology, uh, largely because it has such great explanatory power. Uh, you know, it predicts all kinds of things. Insecure attachments in children predict all kinds of uh, negative outcomes as adults. It was a theory that was first developed in the first half of the 20th century by British psychiatrist uh, John Bowlby, and he studied children under the age of three who had been hospitalized. And I guess back in England at that time, uh, hospitalizations were often very long and often because they thought it would just be better overall, parents were not kind of routinely included in care. And so children just spent, I mean, it, it sounds horrific now from our historical perspective to think about this, but these children were basically uh, kind of abandoned at the hospital for long periods of time. And uh, obviously there were a lot of negative consequences of that, which he studied. And out of his research on those children, he proposed that people are born kind of wired to connect to others because this allows them to survive. It was kind of an evolutionary perspective. And so when they experience a consistent warm parenting, they develop what are called secure attachments. But as we know, parents don't often don't do a, a good job and children instead have to learn how to attach nonetheless. They attach, but they attach in some dysfunctional ways forming insecure attachments. So secure attachments are important because of the functions that they serve. And a couple of the, uh, the functions that will be articulated are that they provide a, a safe haven and they provide a secure base. And both of these turn out to be related to, to uh, the experience of doubt. And so when he talked about parents providing safe haven, what he meant is that parents provide comfort and safety when there is a fear or a threat. Children are comforted by their parents. And over time, they internalize that so that they emerge, hopefully, in adulthood with the ability to comfort themselves. In other words, it's not that we ever stop needing people. We have attachment uh, figures even in adulthood, but we are able to do things with our emotions. When we experience a fear or anger or sadness, we have the capacity to modulate them so that they don't become overwhelming. And so you can see the, the connection here with doubt, right? If doubt is experienced as a threat, somebody who has a secure attachment might be able to deal with those feelings of tension and any distress uh, that, that comes up without it being overwhelming without it, uh, for example, getting in the way of cognitive processing or making people do radical things like breaking with their faith or, or things like that. Whereas people who find this way too threatening and are overwhelmed by it might go on to do something uh, more drastic. The second function that Bowlby articulated is uh, what he called providing a secure base. And so the, the idea here is uh, if you've ever observed small children on a playground, those who are securely attached will run off and do their thing, and then they'll come in and they'll just, you know, kind of touch mom or dad, right? And then run off again. And a few minutes later, they'll come back and just make contact and then run off again, right? Whereas children who are insecurely attached might uh, either ignore the parent or they might uh, just kind of hover around the parent and not be willing to go and explore their world. And if you think about this in adult terms, uh, we don't necessarily do the kind of physical exploration that children do, but we do an intellectual exploration. And so new ideas are not threatening if we have kind of that secure attachment, whereas 
if we don't have it, then new ideas can be quite threatening and we're not as free to explore our world. Now, what psychologists of religion have discovered is that God uh, is experienced in much the way as attachment figures. And so we can attach to God in secure ways, but also in insecure ways, often in ways that reflect the kinds of attachments that we have with our parents. And so people with secure attachments to God won't find new ideas or ideas different than theirs particularly threatening. Uh, If they do feel threatened, they can uh, kind of modulate that emotion. They don't have to react so drastically in response to it. And they feel more freedom to explore the intellectual world, even if it provides a lot more complexity and nuance than uh, might be initially comfortable for them. And that brings us to two traits that you focus on in your article, intellectual humility and uncertainty tolerance. And you say, in fact, that the experience of feeling challenged is the opportunity to develop these these traits. So can you just tell us what you mean by them and how do they help us doubt well? Yeah. So intellectual humility is a, a, a virtue or a character strength that's actually received quite a bit of, uh, of uh, attention recently, not just in the field of psychology, but uh, uh, in philosophy as well, and even theology. I think that when we look at intellectual humility from a distinctively Christian perspective, we need to consider that it is grounded in what my colleague Kent Dunnington calls a glad intellectual dependence on God. In other words, it needs to be uh, rooted in a a recognition that intellectually we are finite and uh, we need to acknowledge that God is omniscient in a way that we will never be. And so this kind of intellectual dependence then allows us to manifest the other characteristics of intellectual humility, things like being willing to recognize that we might be wrong about particular beliefs, uh, knowing how confident we can be in a belief depending on how much evidence we have for it being aware of our own limitations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So being intellectually humble is what allows us to be open to alternative evidence, to differing viewpoints and that kind of thing. Now, when we don't have intellectual humility, what we're going to do is we're going to hold on to our own views more rigidly and with a kind of uniform certainty. We don't see kind of gradients of confidence in our beliefs, but we hold them all with kind of this high uh, level of certainty And this does make alternative viewpoints or evidence uh, pretty threatening. And if just one of our beliefs kind of caves in, then the whole thing comes crashing down. Uh, My friend John Marriott, who studies deconversion, talks about this as kind of a house made out of cards, right? If all of our beliefs about our faith, for example, are equal in terms of our need to hold them with certainty, all the way from central issues like the, the very existence of God and all the way to trivial matters, such as whether drinking alcohol is okay, right? Then if you take one card out of that deck, the whole thing is just going to come tumbling down. It becomes, a, a again, it's a brittle way of, of holding beliefs because it is rather fragile, even when initially it appears kind of very dogmatic. And so uh, under these conditions, uh, doubt is going to be very frightening. But when we do have intellectual humility, then you know, some doubts about some of the relatively peripheral issues that we encounter, uh, for example, those uh, involved in our encounters with the sciences, don't become particularly problematic, especially if we're aware that we have intellectual limitations, uh, that we probably don't even have the capacity to understand all the complexities. And when we have just this underlying confidence in God's omniscience, then we are free to just doubt well. Uh, We don't have to worry about it. 
That's so helpful. So that's with respect to intellectual humility. Uncertainty tolerance is actually, uh, you know, related. It's not so much on the cognitive level, but more on the emotional level and is very tied into what we talked about with respect to attachment, of course. The idea is that some people are simply more sturdy with respect to dealing with tension. When they're faced with ambiguity, as is so often the case, we don't have all the necessary information or the situation is just very, very complex. And so people who don't have this kind of ability to tolerate uncertainty feel threatened and then, again, react behaviorally in ways that are kind of out of proportion to what the problem actually is. When we do have high tolerance for uncertainty, then we can be more kind of flexible, more nuanced in the ways that we try to seek answers to resolve the tension. Uh, again, we can we can move forward with doubting what I call doubting well. Yeah, following that idea, I'm, I'm curious about if we sort of flip that question around to explore our perceptions or our acceptan- acceptance of scientific or more explicit knowledge results. For example, as you know, there's a tendency to see science as this very sort of deductive and absolute set of knowledge, yet we recognize that scientific claims themselves are provisional and they're always subject to continuous change. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what would the roles of intellectual humility and uncertainty tolerance, how would they shape our ability to accept something as trustworthy or, or meaningful Uh, even if it is subject to change over time. When we have that intellectual humility and that uncertainty tolerance, we don't require that absolute level of certainty in order to put our weight down on something. Instead, we're able to kind of evaluate the limits of our knowledge and then place appropriate amounts of confidence in the knowledge that we have. It's actually really a problem when people see scientific knowledge as absolute because as you pointed out, even in science, things change. And so if it's like the kind of fragile faith we talked about, if you have kind of this fragile faith in science, then uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be a betrayal of trust in a sense when things change. And then it wipes out any kind of confidence in science. And I actually think this is part of what we're seeing now in that popular backlash against scientific knowledge with respect to issues such as, I mean, COVID vaccinations and that kind of thing. But when we recognize the limits of scientific knowledge, while this means that the issues are going to be less clear-cut, we're actually in a better position to trust them appropriately, have the appropriate kind of confidence, and then act on them. Following up on that, uh, in the past, in our own university context, we've hosted what has become known as Doubt Night. This is a venue where we invite students and faculty together, and, and we discuss difficult questions or issues Uh, But even here, there's still the same expectation of getting clear-cut answers. And there's always, um, always feels sort of a sense of disappointment when we don't get those clear answers. So what ideas might help us address the reality that some of our difficult questions don't always have, you know, these clear answers? And and I realize in asking this that I'm asking for for a clear answer to this question. Uh, but yeah, what do we do with this sort of uh, this ambiguity or this you know, lack of, of a clear result? Yeah, let me start by saying that I absolutely love that idea of having a doubt night. Uh, such a fantastic idea. And I, I think even holding those kinds of doubt nights uh, can be helpful in suggesting to students that 
there's nothing to fear uh, with respect to the hard issues that come up, right? I, I guess I would suggest coming out of some of what we've talked about a couple of things. So the first thing might be to kind of intentionally set a framework for doubt night and to uh, actually explicitly talk about some of the issues that we've talked about here having to do with the experience of doubt right, right up front. And so this will help people to better understand their experiences and perhaps not to be as frightened of them. Uh, it's a kind of normalizing of experience, right? The, the desire that we all have for certainty, but also just the even theological reasons why we are unlikely to get certainty on many, many issues that are important to us this, this side of heaven. And that that isn't really a problem at the end of the day. It's just, it's just life and it's okay. The second thing I'd, I'd suggest is modeling. Now, I think that just having profs up there talking about these things is good modeling, but maybe to even heighten that modeling a bit, it would be helpful for professors to answer the question, then to briefly address how they deal with the existence of the remaining tensions or ambiguities. Because then you're having people model not just that there might be uh, good, though complex answers to some of the doubts, but also having people model intellectual humility and trust in God and uncertainty tolerance and some of these other things that we've been talking about. So you've already sort of anticipated my next question, which is strategies and practices for those of us who work with students or serve others who are experiencing cognitive dissonance and doubt, what other things would you offer to us as potential strategies or pedagogical practices? So one of the nice things about moving forward with this kind of implicit knowledge thing is that we can actually make the implicit explicit in some ways. So I would say that's kind of the umbrella concept here, that when you're trying to help people uh, you might want to consider that as your goal, your initial goal is to take what might be implicitly informing them and try to draw it out. Because once it's out, once it's in the explicit realm, then you can work with it through language, you know, through reason and all these other things that we're able to do with our explicit knowledge. So, for example, uh, when a student comes to you with an area of doubt, I might start not by trying to help them resolve the content of the doubt, not by providing some potential answers to what's troubling them, but instead, while they're right in the middle of the tension, before the tension has kind of maybe even slightly dissolved by the answers that you give them by asking them about their experiences of doubt. Things like, you know, what does it mean to you that you have doubts? What are you afraid will happen if you can't resolve this doubt? And so this might lead into some really productive uh, uh, discussions in terms of how they view their faith, how they're viewing their experience of God, what their capacities are for uncertainty, tolerance, again, all these things that we've been talking about. And what comes out of that can help you to know how to intervene. You might be able to discuss with them the nature of what faith is. You might help them to understand why we feel the pressure that we do to have certainty in different areas of life and why it might not be such a good idea to make that the criteria for confidence, acknowledging that the tension is unpleasant, but also, again, this idea of normalizing it as, it as just kind of this widespread aspect of living in a fallen world. And then, you know, coming back to that modeling, I think the modeling, again, is always important. You can model the kind of faith in which you can have convictions about the core aspects of the faith and yet be kind of squishy about some of the non-essential elements 
especially those where uh, even as Christians, we have these kind of intramural differences of uh, opinion. And so, uh, again, students seem to think that they have to hold everything with this kind of 100 degree uh, certainty. That's, that's an unfortunate way of trying to make their way uh, in the world, right? Maybe a couple of other thoughts. I've talked about the social pressures, uh, what makes ideas seem plausible or not. And I think the natural conclusion to this is uh, just intentionality about being in, in Christian community. We all know this is important, right? I mean, it's important from a New Testament perspective. We keep talking about it, but unfortunately, there are too many students that just are not deeply embedded in Christian community. Uh, and of course, people who are not at places like Dort or Biola, uh, it's even more difficult when they are uh, pervasively surrounded by you know, uh, secular ideas, secular people. Because we are social creatures, we are affected uh, by uh, just kind of the norms that prevail around us. And so being intentional about being embedded in Christian communities is really important. I guess one other uh, last thought in terms of, you know, your the pedagogy aspect of it. I really do think that doubt can be reframed as something uh, where we don't just want to take people from tension to kind of neutral, but that it can be a real gateway to engaging more deeply with God. It can be an opportunity for, for more uh, spiritual development, right? It's an opportunity to really bite the bullet and recognize our finitude and how much we do actually depend on God, not in the abstract, but in the very concrete instances of whatever it is we are wrestling with. I think in the paper I quoted uh, Steve Evans, uh, I, I love uh, this particular quote where he talked about the Christian scholar and says that, you know, doubt is part of our finitude and can be offered to God. And he, you know, repeats the, that prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so I think that when we are putting ourselves intentionally in this position before God, this is cultivating intellectual humility too. You had alluded to this earlier here in our discussion, and, and in your article, you noted that doubt is often seen as problematic because that lack of uncertainty with respect to, say, this explicit uh, scientific or propositional knowledge but there's also, of course, this cultural religious pressure where we see doubt as a marker of weak faith in some way. So what are some ways pushing back against that perception that, you know, strongly held belief or quote unquote strong faith means that we should have no doubts? It's a process of like trying to get the fish to acknowledge the water that they're swimming in, right? <laughs> I mean, people might not even recognize that that's the way that they're thinking about faith. But, uh, you know, there, there, there are some strong historical trends that have led us to overvalue kind of the cognitive aspects of our faith. And even though I think that churches are changing, you know, I think that there are, are these, uh, you know, spiritual formation trends that are softening the edges a bit. Uh, I do think that still uh, there is kind of this lingering idea belief is kind of the, the, the core of what it means to, to have faith. And I'm not sure that there is any other way to challenge it than just by overtly surfacing it and uh, having people read, you know, passages like Hebrews 11 or the historic creeds of the church and helping them to see that while belief is definitely a component of it, that it has a lot more to do with, again, this 
this kind of uh, allegiance or confidence in the person of God. It's not knowledge that, but knowledge uh, in that's about a relationship with somebody. And I don't know that there's any way around just saying you're thinking about faith in a way that is not helpful. You know, what about, you know, try this on. What do you think about this? Right. Well, that's, that's a great, I love that phrase, try this on. And I, I think that fits in with um, this, this notion of images that you, that you describe in your, in your article. And you discuss this idea of images and, and how it shapes how we respond to ideas or stories. And you note that one of the difficulties that people have in reconciling, say, evolutionary theory with Christian faith is that we're sort of offered this single mechanistic and very materialistic picture of evolution. So I was wondering if you could unpack this idea of, of images and why it seems like we so often approach them as like these all or, not, all or nothing choices in whether or not we're going to accept an idea. Yeah, so this goes a bit uh, back to that idea of uh, implicit and explicit knowledge. and. You know, one of the just kind of nuances that I wrote about in the paper, uh, but that, that again is very subtle, is that there's kind of an intermediary step between just kind of our gut reaction, which is kind of the most primitive form of implicit knowledge, and then the explicit knowledge. And that has to do with, you know, the emergence of a kind of a prototype or story or image that is kind of an in-between level. Uh, between what's explicit and just the raw, you know, kind of gut reactions to something. And so a lot of times when we are dealing with concepts or ideas that are just challenging or difficult for us, uh, one of the ways that we can facilitate that transition from the implicit to the explicit is in thinking about it in, in that sense, right, as a kind of image. Or, or a story, right? Uh, or a prototypical kind of experience. And so it can be helpful to have people uh, consider, for example, in their bodies what, what they're feeling when they listen to an idea. Or to describe kind of the, the feeling words that come to mind when they think about something. And uh, it's often those kinds of things that serve as the the block to kind of considering them rationally or, or that type of a thing, right? A very current example would be something like the vaccination. And so there is a kind of this feeling of threat that's evoked in a lot of people that has to do with perhaps this image uh, that uh, arouses uh, uh, in psychological terms, the emotion of disgust, right? Because it's a penetration of our body by something foreign to us that might be very dangerous and so there's kind of this image that is invasive. And of course, it doesn't help that every story about vaccinations is accompanied by a picture of a needle this big going into somebody's <laughs> skin, right? It's like, what's who is doing these things, right? And so there, even before the reasons are, you know, are, are thought about, are considered, that it evokes this kind of gut level image that is very threatening when you think about it. And that just kind of swamps, you know, the more explicit system in terms of rendering it very difficult to think statistically, you know, about probabilities and those kinds of things that would make for a very reasoned uh, approach to considering the pros and cons. So 
again, I think that when you think about it as an image, it gives you one more tool to learning how to probe uh, and help people to get unstuck when you want them to really consider seriously a different idea. But it reminds me of of some of Justin's work and and other things that are uh, in this section of of your article as well as, you know, what other stories are we providing? Like, you know, are there other other sort of images, word pictures, stories about these different topics that, you know, for stirring the imagination in a little bit different way that that might actually lead to a shift in how people might perceive something like, say, evolutionary theory or other uh, ideas or theories that might otherwise be seen as, as threatening. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we can ask them to consider, even if, even if we're not asking them to believe that alternative image, right? But if we can ask them to just consider it for a moment, what that does is it just loosens the grasp of the, the image that we're trying to uh, maybe dislodge a bit. So even if they don't buy into this alternative picture that, you know, hopefully would be very different from it, we've already accomplished something by helping them to see the role of the alternative image and helping to dislodge it from their imagination in ways that might open them up to, to uh, different ideas, different views. Yeah. Natalie Carnes, who's a theologian at Baylor, has this great book about uh, iconoclasm, and she compares these two kinds of iconoclasm, one which... My language would be like an iconoclasm of cancellation where you're trying to shatter something or pull it down from its pedestal. And then there's also another kind of iconoclasm, which is the sort that you talk about in your article, which we could call the iconoclasm of complication, where we're emplacing a particular image within a gallery of other images to, like you say, to loosen the hold that any given image has uh, on our imagination. And it's just really helpful to think about that particular, uh, I guess, ministry of iconoclasm uh, that, that we can do, that it doesn't just have to be shattering somebody else's view or somebody else's picture, which can be very felt very traumatically, but just that more gentle loosening of the hold that that image has by painting a different picture. So that's, that's really helpful. Well, one thing I keep thinking is I wish that we could find some way of, um, of just making doubt uh, a normal part of human experience. I, I think that many theologians and just thoughtful Christians have have said, you know, that it's a normal part of the Christian's experience, especially in our kind of multicultural world where we're exposed to so many different uh, ideas and perspectives. But it still not has not become something that is considered. Oh yeah, it's just that's pretty normal, right? I mean, statistically, it's pretty normal. I think the stats show between 15 and 20% of adults, college students experience uh, some kind of doubt. And I don't think that even includes the people that have the experience but don't label it doubt. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm a person that necessarily struggles with doubt, but do I have questions about the ways that things fit together intellectually? All the time, right? Um, so I think it's just a, a normative part of human experience. And if we could just help everybody to calm down about doubt uh, and realize that it's not something that has to be dealt with in these drastic ways, right? We'd all be so much better off. But I love that that attachment model of sort of the more secure we are, uh, the, you know, the sort of more safe we feel, how liberating that is that we can 
uh, explore and take risks um, and try things on for size. And, you know, there's a certain safety there, uh, you know, a willingness to sort of uh, have, have doubts and work through these things. I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, your perspective as a psychologist, is this sometimes like work in the wrong sort of way? Like if we, if somebody reacts strongly, you know, because of doubt and we say, well, that's because you don't have a secure attachment. <laughs> We're sort of saying here that if you are handling doubt well, that means you're sort of securely attached to God. And if you're not, um, there's, you know, clearly some issues there. So I'm just kind of curious, uh, what do you ever, do you ever see that sort of thing? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Shannon, because it would be kind of to add insult to injury, right? If somebody is doubting you, say that's because your relationship with God sucks. If it were just <laughs> right. you know, more solid. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I would ever, you know, tell someone, well, that's because your relationship with God is insecure. Uh, but right, uh, right, right. <laughs> but what I might do is recognizing that there's some potential lack of kind of a felt sense of connection with God is I might help to, you know, I might recommend some of the things that could lead to that kind of a relationship, right? So here's where some of the experience of some of the spiritual formation people can be very, very helpful in terms of, you know, we can't just read a Bible verse and have that change our minds about the way God is, but we can develop practices, practices uh, such as gratitude to God, where we uh, train ourselves to become attentive, you know, to God's faithfulness in our lives through just the practice of noticing when God is faithful. Things like meditation on scripture that gives it a chance to kind of work its way down into our hearts, you know. So even things like encouraging people to sit with their doubt in God's presence, which is a different thing than just sitting uh, around worrying about their doubt, right, uh, gives them a chance to internalize, you know, God's mm -hmm. care for them. And so I think I would go that way rather than say insecure attachment. What do we expect? Well, our guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Hall, and the article is Teaching Students to Doubt Well. The link is in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall, for joining us on the In All Things podcast. My pleasure. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.